I love thinking about market maps and sub-markets and adjacent markets. And here's a dirty little secret. I even like to think about how to label axes. So now you know my secret. In addition to being a podcast host, I am a total market research nerd. And whether it's about a podcast or learning about a market, what I like doing is digging into something new and then how that leads into something even newer. So what's new? What's hot? ESG is hot. Environmental, social, and governance. Maybe I'll make a Venn diagram. But today, we're going to be talking about ESG, and then we're going to be talking about a very new element of ESG that looks at technology and its ties to bias, fairness, and more. And let me tell you, this is a big deal. So I'm very excited to be talking with Charles Radcliffe, AI ethics, technology governance, and ESG specialist at a very cool startup called Ethics Grade. So let's start our journey through a market map. We'll walk our way through E, S, and G, and we're going to dig into AI and ethics. I'm John Pryor, and welcome to Georgian's Impact Podcast. Charles, welcome. Hey, John. Good to be here. Thank you very much. And just tell me a bit about Ethics Grade, please. Yeah, so Ethics Grade, we're an ESG ratings business. And um, what that means is we evaluate companies' environmental, social governance credentials, or a better way I like to call it, we hunt for watermelons, companies which look green on the outside, but anything but in the middle. Talk to me about ESG and why this is so important and who cares? So I think that's the most exciting thing about what I do is that uh, for me, it's sort of putting threads from all aspects of my life into, into one thing. I guess I've always had a difficult relationship with capitalism because I've always seen the downsides. I've always seen the risks. I've always seen the harms and the wider impact that perhaps um, you know, hasn't been necessarily in focus the whole time. But like every entrepreneur, I've been playing the game. And so for me, I guess stumbling across ESG while I was at Fidelity, it struck me that um, not only is this a mega trend for our time, but it's also something which has, has a huge requirement for disruption in its own right. I mean, the way that ESG works today is, is, is fairly broken. So I think it's, it's, it's kind of a double whammy for me. It's, uh, it's something which is, you know, has high potential impact and high opportunity. And for me, those, those two things are great coming together. Is it real that I see companies always put out their annual reports and now I'm seeing companies putting out ESG reports? Are they doing it because they care or are they doing it because they have to? I would say that in the last century, the 20th century was really dominated by um, shareholder value. That was, the, that was what management teams were put on this planet to do. They were, they were there to maximize their shareholder returns. And in the 21st century, I think something has shifted. And the shift is really about stakeholder value. And stakeholders are more than just shareholders. It's employees, it's customers, it's the communities that organizations are based in as well. And the starting point for this is really CSR, corporate social responsibility. And I think everyone will be familiar with this, that you know, companies have done charity runs and you know, good initiatives for the local communities. But these tend to be very moment in time points kind of activities which are unstrategic in that they are ground up they're from from people within organizations and you occasionally have like a head of csr that's coordinated these things 
But there's a major difference between essentially CSR and ESG. ESG is really about how is the impact of an organization interwoven into its operations? What's the strategic lever that the board will be will be pulling? And then how does that trickle down and flow into all aspects of an organization's work? And then, of course, you know, what are the reporting and disclosures that come up within the organization so that they can run those things effectively? And then, of course, external reporting as well. And so, yeah, the ESG report, I think, is as important as the, the annual you know, corporate filings. So companies look at, and these reports are really important. Is there also, besides the company, there are funds and investors that seem to care. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I've also heard that if you take a plain mid-cap investment fund and an ESG investment fund, are they beginning to cross that the ESGs are outperforming now? Is, that, is there some truth to that? There's a couple of schools of thoughts on this. I mean, there's definitely a school of thought to say that ESG is, is an important investment topic because it, it delivers alpha and you know it's good for your pocket. I'm not in that group of people. And I, I guess it might be a strange thing to say, given the fact I run an ESG company. But <laughs> I think there's essentially, think of it like a, a three-legged stool. You've got your shareholder return as one of those legs. You've got to deliver financial performance. The second leg is really around risk management. You know, there are things which you can do which might be high risk, high return, and there's things which you might do which are low risk but low return. And I guess you've got to have your your risk levers as an organization tightly controlled. And that's really been the discipline of the 20th century. And I think the third leg to that stool is ESG. What is the impact we want to have? You know, do we care about the impacts on communities? Do we care about equality? Do we care about diversity? Do we care about the environment? And I think what's what's changed in the last 20 years is that people do care much more about those things. And then people are starting to measure, monitor and pull those levers. So I guess that's the way I would think about it is it's not a replacement. It's a, it's a balancing act. And I think nice. the great companies of this century are the ones that get that balance right. Now, you mentioned climate. What's within ESG? How, how broad a space is it? For solids, it's, it's a really bad acronym <laughs> because, <laughs> because it, it stands for environmental, social and governance, which are three kind of related, but not that related topics. And there are people, particularly in the Germany, Swiss region that talk about ESG and D, the D being digital responsibility, so digital ethics. Uh, I, I, I think three letters is enough personally. So I think ESG is, is, is plenty of a mouthful. But for me, it's not about the letters. It's about all of, of an organization's non-financial impact. It's really about alignment of an organization to values. And so regardless of whether you know you cover plastic pollution or animal rights or human rights or diversity or AI ethics, it doesn't really matter which part of this ESG umbrella that you cover. I think it's all really, the concern is what is the impact that an organization is having outside of its financial results? How is that organization aligning its activities to values? From an investor perspective, how do investors align their capital to values? And I think those are the questions. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way because I, I always see a list. You know, I see labor conditions or gender pay caps or climate. Change. They all matter, but it matters differently to different companies. So we're going to talk about watermelons shortly. You know, one of the watermelons would be Amazon declaring that their drivers don't have to urinate in bottles. And of course, having to backtrack from that. So that's a labor condition issue, which has some impact, which might be different than they may be driving electric cars and still can't stop to go to the bathroom. So I hadn't thought about, you mentioned the three legs of the stool and ESG is one of the third legs, but within that leg, there's a whole different bunch of elements. Companies have to consciously decide, and they do, right? Have to consciously decide what they're going to focus on to have the most impact. 
Is that fair to say? They do. And I guess the question is, how do they answer that? And I think there's a big difference there between big companies and small organizations. And you know what I've found, we've been focused mostly on large asset managers and hedge funds. But one of the things that's been really interesting recently is I've had a lot of you know, small cap CEOs or even startup scale-ups uh, getting in touch and saying they've received pressure from their investors to be more ESG, in quote, whatever that means. It usually is the second line that comes out of that. <laughs> and um, and they say, you know, one, one CEO said to me, um, I've been given the list of the UN SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and I've got to try and figure out how my business maps against that. And, you know, he was pulling his hair out because, you know, he didn't see the relevance at all. And I think this is the key problem, I guess, with ESG is looking at it as a one size fits all. What really matters, if you look at the things that have gone wrong in terms of a great example recently is Basecamp. Basecamp is a kind of a Slack alternative, project management alternative. And it's it's not a particularly big company. It's maybe, you know, 50 to 100 people or so. And I think a third of the workforce have walked out in a very short period of time. Why? Because essentially, the company hasn't managed ESG particularly well. And in the way that they haven't managed, in, in, the, in the kind of the form of that poor management has really come down to a simple thing. It's about stakeholder engagement. And I think this is the key thing, whether it's Google and you know, Timnit and, and you know, people who've been very critical of, of Google, or whether it's you know, Basecamp, which is you know, the other end of the spectrum in terms of size of organization. The thing that unites both those organizations is stakeholder engagement. And so whether you're a CEO of a five-person company or a 50,000-person company, the same task is really beholden to you, which is you need to map out your stakeholders and engage with them, talk to them, find out what matters to them. And if it is worker rights, if it is worker conditions, then make sure you've got a strategy for that. If it is the environment or animal rights or child protection or human rights or the environment, then make sure you understand those things. And as you move through your stakeholder pool, you know, as you move from employees to customers to prospects to the market to investors, and your order of those things might be different to mine, you know, I think that's okay, but um, you should still map out what's important to each of those groups. And where you find right. strong commonalities, that's where you have the biggest risks. And so the key to this all, I think, is stakeholder engagement. You know, the SDGs are great if you're, you know, a 100,000-person organization or if you're a government. <laughs> but if, if you're not either of those two things, then I think SDGs are maybe somewhat helpful to frame your, your thinking. But really, it comes down to something much more basic. You know, talk to your stakeholders, find out what they care about, find out where they are unhappy about the impact your organization might have on some of those you know, value some of those things that they hold dear, and then work out a strategy of engagement with those people to then manage, identify the metrics and manage those metrics. And, and that's how you manage ESG. It's amazingly broad. I mean, you, you touched on Tim Jebra. We actually spoke to her a couple of years ago. Fascinating story. I thought the base camp was so interesting because engage, engage, tell us, you know, talk about things. Oh, well, not anymore because now we don't like what you're talking about. That's hard to open up Pandora's box and then say we've decided to close the box. And obviously yeah. a third of the people walked out. So since it's so broad, is there a consensus to what a good set of reporting metrics should look like? Is it just what every company needs, like you talk about engaging with stakeholders, or is there some something that could be kind of aggregated at a company level, for example, for measuring? Yeah, and I think this is the this is the challenge, and this is what everyone in the ESG space is working on trying to solve is unifying that reporting structure. So, I mean, I think the truth is is that organizations should be reporting meaningful things, and and I, I think right now the best that organizations can do is be you know upfront, communicate, and and don't just talk about 
the marketing show, show the detail. So in my niche, which is AI ethics and AI governance, what I see a lot of is organizations publishing their, their value statements. And there's been loads of examples of this. Samsung at the beginning of the year published theirs. It was a beautiful, highly produced, glossy couple of page brochure. HSBC have most recently done theirs. And again, these are kind of marketing statements. You know, we believe in quality, justice, fairness, et cetera. I mean, what, what's happened is they've got a bunch of senior people together in a room. They've used lots of post-it notes, agreed on the six or seven least <laughs> offensive words, and then they've got someone to produce it into a marketing document. You know, that's not ESG, that's marketing. And I'm not saying it's of no value, but it is of very, very limited value in terms of understanding, is this organization, does this organization carry risk or not? And so what you need to do instead is you need to look beyond those kind of principles and you need to find protocols, you need to find substantive governance, substantive activities that you can communicate to the market. And so in our research, in our little tiny niche of ESG, what we focus on is looking for the evidence of those things. And the companies that we rate well are the ones that are able to surface that the best. And the companies that we don't rate well are the ones which are a little bit more opaque on these questions. So I think really that's the... That's the first step an organization needs to take. There are plenty of people like me and like you know, plenty of others in the space who run surveys, who kind of try to tease out information where it is a little bit opaque. And I think um, you know, that's a burden to a lot of people and seen as a burden. And I think uh, organizations need to find effective ways of responding to that burden because increasingly, you know, the, uh, the penalty for not engaging with those, um, with those surveys is, is a higher cost of capital and potentially you know, being rated and being picked up and being seen as a, as a watermelon. I had never heard that term before. I love it. I want you to explain it. I would have said greenwashing, which is probably a very small subset. So please tell our audience about watermelons. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't take the full credit for it, um, although I, I guess I got taken credit for connecting it into the ESG world. So I was a very bad project manager back in the day. I worked for the World Bank of Canada, and I worked for a few other organizations, and I was I was a you know, entrepreneurs are not necessarily known for their project management skills. You've got to be kind of all things to all people. And, you know, it's a very different discipline. And I remember, you know, somebody had a poster up on the side of the wall saying, no, no watermelons here. And um, I looked at it and I didn't really understand the context. And I thought about it a little bit more. And then I suddenly realized it was a, it was a project management reference, you know, projects which look green on the outside, but are anything but once you peer behind the executive summary. And, you know, being in project management, you know, my corporate career, being very familiar with watermelons, it was a very natural leap for me to make when I got into the ESG world, because the ESG world is full of watermelons. And I think that's exactly the answer in, you know, the UK when we had Boohoo, which is a fashion brand, which on the face of it looked like a very environmentally friendly organization. But again, workers' rights were abysmal. Amazon with, you know, drivers peeing in bottles because they're not given work breaks, but the company making a big song and dance about its environmental credentials. You know, there's lots of examples of watermelons. Essentially, it's an organization that looks green on the surface, scratch that surface, and you get into that, that yellow layer. And then um, when you start cutting it open, you find that actually it's quite deeply red in the middle. And that, yeah, that is a watermelon. And they're delicious, but, but <laughs> toxic. <laughs> but it's interesting because we often think about horror stories, but most horror stories people would naturally talk about at a dinner or whatever would be security breaches. And an ESG horror story does have financial implications, does have negative, you know, they always say, if, if you like something, you tell one person, you don't like your company, you tell 10 people. This is one of these things that hundreds and thousands of people will find out something bad about the company. It cannot be good for the bottom line. 
I think there is a concern from people that, you know, social media and blogs and kind of living in a culture right now where people feel a little bit more able to communicate, you know, the, the negative about their day-to-day work or the environment they work in. I don't think that's the kind of trend that we should be worrying about. I think the trend is there's that organizations haven't developed that muscle whereby they engage with stakeholders. It's really that. And and some super large organizations, I mean, let's take Facebook with you know nearly three billion users. If you listen to Facebook, you know, they will say things like, well, we've got 3 billion users. I mean, we can't go and talk to everyone, can we? And I don't think that gets you off the hook. I think, in fact, that makes it more acute, more important that you have an effective strategy. And if Facebook can't find a way of scaling their stakeholder engagement, then it's certainly too big an organization. And I think that's really the challenge and actually the tension point. So quite aside from antitrust, quite aside from all of the other issues, facing the tech industry right now. I think this is a question which responsible leaders are going to have to grapple with. How do we build effective strategies to engage with our stakeholders? And those that do will deal with the challenges that are brought to them in an, in an effective way. And those that don't will have people acting out and speaking out and rightly so. So Charles, is it, is it fair to say that you know ESG market is you know fully established. This space is odd. You know, there's different types of data. Does each company do the same thing? Uh, how different is this than other type of analytical companies? Can you let me know about that? I think there's two aspects to what we do, which is um, different way of thinking. So, essentially, when as an investor, when you're buying ESG data, because that's what you would be doing, you know, at Fidelity or. BlackRock, or even, even if you're as a consumer, if you go to Yahoo Finance, you'll see Sustainalytics ESG scores for many of the companies that are uh, there. What you're essentially doing is you're buying a kind of pre-baked cake, and that pre-baked cake contains the, the ingredients and the recipe and the particular flavoring that the person who put it together uh, wanted you to consume. And then, but what you're doing as a as a fund manager is you're essentially buying multiple cakes. You're buying a cake from you know one of many providers. And then you're trying to deconstruct that cake back into its core ingredients and then make your own particular flavor cake. And as you can imagine, with cakes and with ESG scores, kind of impossible. And that's really the, the problem. And, you know, it, there's nothing wrong. And the, the kind of classic line that people in the ESG space have, have used to kind of show the problem is, is if you buy credit rating data from different data providers, there's a very, very high correlation and if you think about it, that's that's what you want. You know, credit scores should be objective statements of fact. That the answer should be in the numbers. But if you buy ESG ratings, then there's a very weak correlation, a 0.61 compared to a 0.99 correlation. So it's pretty poor. So you know, two ESG providers giving you a very different score. If you go to you know, ethics grade and look up some big companies, you'll see a very different picture to uh, if you buy the data from MSCI. And it's not because we're right and MSCI is wrong. It's just we're looking at different things, MSCI. And to the extent that we are looking at the same things as MSCI, we maybe weight them differently. And you know that's not just because we're looking at AI ethics and MSCI are looking at more kind of classic environmental sustainability. We also look at sustainability, but we look at it from a different angle. But if you buy that data from S&P or Moody's, who are looking at it from a very similar perspective to MSCI, again, you'll see a different, a different picture. And I think the kind of the big fraud, for want of a better word, in the ESG space is that there's this denial that people who are rating, people who are evaluating organizations are not bringing their subjectivity to the table. And essentially, that's the kind of thing we need to blow apart, which is, you know, when you're buying ethics grades data today, you see our ratings, you're buying kind of 
Charles Radcliffe's view of the world. And my view of the world is not representative of everyone. And so what we need to do is the next step. We need to offer personalization. We need to be able to offer people their own view of the world. You know, John and I, you've had a you know, really interesting background in the data analytics space, which is an industry I spent a lot of my career. You know, we're going to see a lot of the things, you know, uh, that our views on the world we're going to see in common, but there's going to be differences as well. And, and I think those differences are really important to highlight. And it's not about shaming people. It's not about telling people they're wrong. It's about just helping people align their capital to values. So that's kind of what we do at Ethics Grade on a super niche. You know, and I'm not trying to pretend that what we do is expansive, all of ESG. But what we do does cover the E and it does cover the S and it does cover the G. I mean, a lot Fantastic. of technology governance is about G. But of course, bias and discrimination around data is a lot about S, but also so is the impact of automation on unemployment and the nature of employment. That's definitely an S. And the big dirty secret of the AI industry, as you well know, is the fact that this stuff is intensely energy consumptive. We're burning electricity and turning it into fancy maths. The question is, where are you doing that fancy maths? Are you doing it in Bangalore or Boston? Because those two data centers will have very, very different energy footprints. You know, one will be coal and the other one will be greener. And also, are you, are you giving your engineers controls to be able to maybe design uh, the training such that it's maybe a little bit more um, optimized? So are they controlling where it's getting done? Are they controlling the optimizations in play? That's an E question. And so even in our little niche, we cover E, S, and G, but by no means the whole spectrum of things. Well, I got that Venn diagram in my head. So some of the things that will drive this, of course, will be regulations. And it's, I'm going to guess, and I'll ask you to comment here, GDPR is really a starting point. Uh, what's going to be happening in terms of uh, future regulations, probably coming out of Europe first? Yeah. So specifically around AI, so GDPR, I think to a lot of people, they saw as the kind of the beginning and the end of the regulatory intervention from the European Union. And, um, and I guess those people will be deeply disappointed by what's happening now. So in 2019, Ursula von der Leyen, the new European Commission president, announced, I would say, really sweeping changes to the, the regulatory regime around tech in general across the European Union. So there's a very bold vision. And I think it's worth understanding that vision because everything else kind of then fits into context. So the, the vision is, is really twofold. Firstly, there should be a European single market for digital. So Europe is a really great place to live and work. Unfortunately, I've been kicked out by my fellow compatriots. But it's a great place to live and work because you can travel freely, you can work freely, you can trade freely. And I think that's a really important thing. But in a digital sphere, that's not perfectly true. And I think one of the challenges that's happened in Europe is that companies are incorporated in Ireland or in Luxembourg. They've then performed services in Malta or London. And then they've, it's turned out that the you know, consumers in those places who want to raise grievances have found it quite difficult to do so. You know, I'm not mentioning anyone by name, but let's mention Uber, for example, have hmm. definitely exploited that problem. So the digital single market is a way of addressing a level playing field across the union. And there's lots of parts of, of, the, of the, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, which are two other pieces of legislation which are aimed at addressing some of those challenges. The other aspects that's sort of kind of the prevailing thought process in Brussels is that you know Europe is maybe to some people sort of lost its way in re in relation to uh, the sort of tech duopoly we have between the United States and and China, and there's a lot of Europeans who are trying to forge a different path in relation to those two uh, economies and this kind of idea of a European 
economy of tech uh, and a, a European tech industry as something which is deeply attractive. I mean, goodness knows how that's going to be achievable given now the UK has left uh, European orbit and, and the UK is a very big part, a constituent part of the tech industry, particularly the AI ecosystem. But leaving that aside, this idea that, you know, in the, in the 70s, um, you know, we achieved this with Boeing threats. You know, Boeing was essentially the only aircraft manufacturing when all the small independents got bought up or went out of business. You know, now Europe sees a kind of a very similar challenge with relation to Google, Facebook, and, and other organizations. And so what we're going to see is essentially two things. We're going to see a lot of regulatory intervention. That's the stick. And we're going to see a lot of fiscal stimulus, and that's the carrot. And whether it works, whether Europe and von der Leyen and, and uh, Thierry Breton, the, the trade minister, whether, whether they achieve their goal or not remains to be seen. But it's going to be a very, very interesting time. And of course, the foundational layer, which is GDPR, is now being built on. So in the last few months, we've seen four really important pieces of legislation coming out of Brussels in draft form. One is the Digital Governance Act, which looks at public data sources. So GDPR looks at you know, essentially private data sources, private data. The Data Governance Act looks at public data sources. So that's going to be very interesting in terms of taking things like health data and finding ways of exploiting the value in that without exploiting the data subjects. The Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, those address some of those common uh, common markets questions I raised. And then most recently on the 21st of April, the um, the AI Act draft was um, was published. And essentially what this means is anyone doing AI in Europe will have reporting and disclosure opportunities. And if you're doing high-risk AI, those opportunities become mandatory requirements. The AI Act is so fascinating to me. Let's talk about the different, if you could take us through kind of the different Risk AIs, unacceptable and limited, and you mentioned high risk. I just can you just yeah. kind of quickly go through some of those risks of AI? I think it's important for our audience to kind of understand the different types that are out there. Yeah, sure. So I mean, the starting point is that some stuff is going to be banned, and I think that's probably a bit of a surprise to most of us who are waiting for this thing to happen because we've been calling for red lines and we didn't really expect to get our wish. So some some types of AI have been banned. I mean, it's a pretty small list of things, but I think it sets a precedent. So if you are out and out trying to manipulate people, game people, then you know what you're doing uh, would no longer be allowed. Simple. So simple what China game. is doing in Shanghai for doing social credit? Well, uh, that so the band. So manipulative and more in terms of, you know, if you if you go to the platform that was deliberately trying to game people into, you know, subliminal manipulation, that's strictly banned. Six percent of global turnover penalty. And I think that's that kind of catches, yeah, so it's steeper than GDPR. So that kind of catches, I guess, the worst acting. Social credit's an interesting one. And so social credit, what, what's been prohibited in the draft legislation, so we'll see what makes it to law finally, uh, so public sector social credit. So if you're a municipal authority and you want to start a credit score to see how well your citizens are putting out their garbage and then giving them tax breaks as a result of that, then, yeah, you can't do that anymore. That, that would be banned. So I think what all the European Union has done is really put a, a red line to say, we're not going to build a, a platform like China. And we could probably talk a whole podcast on that question alone, because <laughs> that also sets Europe on a very difficult path where it comes to automation and alternative ways of creating incentive structures for people in a kind of non-abundant, sorry, non-scarce economy. Leaving that aside, then more kind of here and now, high-risk AI. High-risk AI is basically, again, really quite limited in scope. But the most interesting thing, which is going to touch every organization, is HR. You know, I think what's so interesting about that sector is you've got a few watermelons. Um, I won't mention any names, but you've got a few watermelons in play. 
of large organizations that provide HR services to European companies, which look on the face of it quite unoffensive, but probably don't have the right controls in place behind the scenes. And what's really interesting about cloud HR is, you know, and I think some organizations like Workday have really understood this challenge really well, which is, you know, they may have thousands of customers or tens of thousands of customers, but though each of those customers have thousands, if not tens of thousands of employees. So they have millions of people whose employments, whose redundancies, whose training programs, whose hiring decisions are all running on their platform. So if they screw up, then it's potentially going to be really impactful and, and cost them their business. So I think the commission have understood that quite well. And it's also a lot of safety usage in marine and, and automotive and the aerospace industry is also caught in that. And then for everything else is essentially, there's a sort of a another category for, you know, like California have done, you've got to disclose if you're... If you're providing an AI interface like a chatbot, then you have to disclose you're engaging with a chatbot. That seems pretty sensible. And there's also a kind of a deep fake catch, which is if you're producing content that might masquerade as being human created, you need to label that as accordingly. So you've got a traditional set of customers. It sounds like with all these governmental, there are different, are there other governments, other customers? And I've seen, you know, Swiss Digital in, in, Initiative. Are there more customers throughout that in this space for someone like Ethics Grade now? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of not-for-profits. I mean, Swiss Digital Initiative are doing some really great work around data privacy and um, and online harms. And there's lots of not-for-profits are looking at different angles of this. Essentially, what the European AI Act means is if you're, you know, if you're in the business of, of selling AI within the European Union, and it's going to affect European citizens, which is kind of every tech company, let's face it, then if you're in the high-risk stuff, you have to do some you know, conformity assessment and some mandatory reporting and disclosure. And if you're not in the high-risk category, and of course, everyone's going to be telling everyone that their particular you know, special shape of AI system doesn't make it into the rules for X, Y, and Z, but there's a very strong voluntary scheme that essentially the, the commission is trying to create. And that's really what Ethics Grade is set out to try and do. So like when you buy a, a fridge, you get that kind of nice energy sticker on the side of it. Or when you buy a car, you have the NCAP rating scheme, which shows you know super safe cars versus those which just kind of inch over the regulatory requirements. You know, we're trying to create the same sort of ecology within within Europe. So I think it's a great opportunity. You know, a lot of corporates, when the European Commission did their consultation in 2020, you know, I read a lot of those consultation responses from industry and a lot of companies said, oh my goodness, it's a, it's a big burden on us. It's a lot of work for us to do. And, you know, frankly, that's going to get away in the way of innovation. Frankly, that's going to get in the way of providing great services to, to consumers. And essentially what we've tried to do is build something which is minimal burden to industry and also is a great experience for consumers so that people can discern, you know, so you might not care if you're going to buy a, a new mobile phone, whether you buy an Apple or a Huawei or a Samsung, you might not care whether, you know, the AI ethics is, is under control of those companies. You might buy on price, you might buy on features, you might buy on the design. But I think some people, people maybe more like me, will care about those things and it will be a buying decision. I think we want to create that marketplace that enables people to do that. And, and Apple's made their bet. They've declared that people are going to care about privacy and we're going to stick to our guns. So they, they, that's, we have a company that's really kind of dug their heels in on that. So let's talk a little bit about your business. What's your revenue model? How, do, how, how does Ethics Grade uh, get paid? I guess you know, we are at an advantage in relationship to a lot of not-for-profits who've also thought about the same issues that we have in essentially labeling and rating companies and products on their performance and I guess the advantage we have is we've got a very strong commercial discipline, and that is because we've realized that investors 
need this data in order to make the right investment decisions. And I think the gift that COVID has given us, not like COVID has given us many gifts, but the gift that it has given us is that investment portfolios have really shifted from oil and gas and mining focused to tech focused. And what that has meant is that um, you know fund managers have realized that ESG data that they were buying in are very, very good at understanding you know, environmental risks and human rights risks and not so good at understanding the sort of technology governance risks which we're covering. So for us, our revenue model is we license our data. We provide a data feed via API to hedge funds and asset managers. And you know, we think that's a really great business. And you know, those people are using our data essentially to build trading strategies and you know they so therefore rightly pay us for our research and everyone else we give it for free. So if you're a consumer or you're a journalist or you're an academic, or frankly, if you're anyone other than somebody trading using our data, you can come to our website, download two page scorecards on each company that we cover. And we provide that as a free of charge service. That's tremendous. How much of what you do is automated today will be automated in the future? How do you view the analysis and collection of data over time? So I guess that's why I'm a little bit relaxed about not forcing people into, you know, reporting in a kind of very consistent format. I think we can be a lot more permissive and allowing organizations big and small to report how they want to report. And then our job is to be very good at hoovering that data up and and then processing it and analyzing it. I guess the benefit I've got personally is I've run technology teams before. I've worked in financial services. I've run startups. And I know that the worst thing a company like mine can do is just go up and buy the, build the tech and not build enough training data to, to be able to, um, to automate the, uh, the, the process. So what we've done is really designed a process. It's very manual. There's lots of Excel. It's, it's not, not what you'd expect it to be um, when you see an AI company. But what we're doing is we're throwing out, you know, to use a term that you'll be very familiar with, the data exhaust. The data exhaust we're very deliberately throwing out is the stuff that we know that we can train a model with. And at the end of this quarter, we will then have three data points per company on each of the 171 questions in our model. And we cover 232 companies so far. So that's quite a good chunk of data. And we're pretty confident that will be enough to start to get some leverage. And really, that's what you know AI or any machine is. It's a form of leverage. So today, it takes us about one day of our analyst time to rate a company. And we think we can get that to about seven companies per day per analyst. More than that, and I think we'll be questioning quality, but I think that's something which we can do over the next few years. And that's really what we can do to scale. And essentially what we're doing is, you know, we're playing the same game that many other people in the ESG space have played in terms of building a research team, finding ways of automating it. There's nothing special about that. The special source we have is essentially the data model that we're building to hold all this data in enables us to arbitrarily cut that data, personalize the data feed according to your values. We're building a, a dating website, essentially, a matchmaking service. And that would be very hard to do in the way that we understand you know, other ESG companies have done it. So you know, it's like it's the difference between, um, you know, in the UK, we still have terrestrial television. You know, you've got four channels or five channels. That's really the ESG space. You, you can buy one of five channels and, you know, you get the programming. What we're offering is YouTube. Over the top. I love it. So, you know, it's funny, we spent a lot on talking about Europe, but clearly this is applicable everywhere and that we are not, Europe may be driving this. They did a lot of driving with the GDPR and this this AI act is, is amazing, but it clearly has impacts globally, particularly North America. So Charles Radcliffe, this is just a fantastic discussion. I wish you the best of luck and thank you for spending the time with us. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. <laughs>